to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to COVID, business continuity, resilience, emergency management, anything relatable to those topics, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community plan, prepare, and respond to and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free, send me an email. You can reach me either uh, on Voice America, the button underneath the show's graphic sends me an email. Uh, YouTube, you can send me uh, or leave a message in the comments, or you can even find me on LinkedIn. I am the only Alex Fulick there, so I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. Longtime listeners and longtime viewers, <clears throat> now you'll know that I spoke at the Business Continuity Virtual World Conference in November 2020. And I expressed uh, a desire to uh, get some of those speakers here on the show. And uh, if you've been watching and listening long enough, you know we've got a fantastic response and we've got a lot of people uh, coming on the show to talk about their topics and other things. And today is one of those days as well. So I want to welcome to the show the speaker with the topic, public se- uh, sorry, public sector organizations, a business continuity professional's biggest foe. That's, that'll be interesting. I'd like to welcome to the show the speaker of that topic, Juliana Richardson. Juliana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Now, uh, literally, we've got people around the globe who listen and watch. So could you take a minute or two and uh, tell us about yourself, what you do, and how you got in the industry? Yeah, that's fine. Um, So I actually got in the industry by doing a degree in disaster management and emergency planning at Coventry University. Um, And then since then, I've worked in various public sector organisations from a large NHS acute trust to a local resilience forum, county council. Then I moved to London and to work for a borough council. And now I'm actually at Moorfields Eye Hospital as the emergency planning lead. So I worked in various different sectors of the public sector. Um, working in emergency planning and business continuity. Oh, it's great. It's a pleasure to have you here on the show. Thank you. Now, let's jump straight into things. Can you clarify something for us? Because sometimes it seems as though the, the line is blurred. What's the difference between public and private sectors? So in terms of emergency planning and business continuity, I think the major difference is public sector emergency planning is very much at the forefront. We have a responsibility to keep our residents safe and we don't as much think about how we keep our organisation safe, whereas public sector are all about keeping your, sorry, private sector are all about keeping your organisation safe because they don't have the responsibilities that public sector organisations do. So I think that's the main difference between the two. Also in public sector, we usually have one team doing emergency management and business continuity. And as I've just said, because emergency management gets a lot more weight, then business continuity ends up being something that you kind of go, oh, we've got an audit coming up. 
we better do a bit on that. Whereas we very much focus on your emergency planning type incidents. Um, the budget, I would say, um, public sector organisations obviously have a very limited budget um, and not as much is given to emergency planning as you are kind of sometimes seen as the team that you have to have because there's a legal requirement, but you never want to use. Um, unfortunately, in the past couple of years, emergency planning teams have been used quite a lot, especially in 2017 in London, um, where we had quite a few incidents. <laughs> um, and of course, in the public sector, we don't just sit in a room and validate our plans. We do have to use them in reality. I've had many a phone call at two o'clock in the morning to say a property needs evacuating due to a fire. There's residents out on the street what are you going to do for them? Whereas up till now, potentially private sectors haven't had to respond to major incidents because of the nature of their work. Um, obviously, COVID has now changed that. and We're all responding to an incident. So I think they're the main things, but emergency planning is very much the forefront of public sector organisations. So how do you go about creating those plans for the public sector? You know, it, for private sector, you know, what tends to happen is they'll do some sort of a, an assessment and have one person go around and do a bunch of interviews, yeah. fill in a template, and, you know, there we go. And you mentioned audit, you know, and a lot of times that's the only reason they're doing it for, you know, for creating those plans is for audit or and compliance reasons. But how does the public sector then go about with, because you mentioned limited budgets, you know, and yeah. you get calls at all, all times and you have to review those plans. And of course, me being a member of the public, I want to make sure, you know, what you're doing protects me. So how do yeah. you go about creating those? So in my last job working in a London borough, we had an assurance process which set out how we had to update our plans. So most of them were on a three-yearly review, unless you have an incident and then we update them. So emergency planning plans are a lot easier to update because it's the kind of sexy stuff if you like you get the police involved you've got the helicopters coming in people want to help you update them people want to update a mass fatalities plan a flu pandemic plan so it's easier to get the engagement for people to help you write it and for them to take time out to write it and then exercise business continuity on the other hand because it's seen as the secondary um, part of emergency planning, we as the professionals in the public sector can't write the plans for them. So it's not a case of us going around questioning the different services. In my last role, we had over 100. We have to go and make them fill out the forms, which when that is number 50 on their list and they're already so busy, it just gets dropped and dropped and dropped and then you get the audit come round and it's, okay, we really need to do it, but the plans aren't necessarily fit for purpose because they've been wrote for an audit. I, I'm interested in something you said there, three-year reviews. Yeah. That's interesting because in uh, business continuity, um, you know, all the standards and all the uh, guiding bodies that are out there, you know, say everything has to be annual. You've got to do it every year, blah, 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 blah. You know, even when there's no changes in your organization, you got to do it every year. But emergency management, you know, who looks after people, you know, and respond, responds to, um, for the, 
I don't want to say for the most part, people issues, but uh, obviously, you know, with more people involved, it's every three years. How, how do you explain or what are your thoughts on that um, gap? So that is one of the one of the challenges actually when you are doing emergency planning and business continuity because you're going to the different services and saying you need to update your plan every year because that's what business continuity says but then you're also going to the certain services that assist with emergency planning and saying actually we don't need you to update the plan for three years because of the three yearly cycle so it is a challenge to get over that people People seem to think they we're putting more work on them to make them update their own plan every year, whereas the plans that we hold and we just ask for advice, we only update for three every three years. So there is that there is that kind of difference between the two, which is very hard to overcome, especially when you're asking people to add more to their workload. Mm-hmm. I think. The reason emergency plans, especially in the organisation where I've worked and as part of kind of the um, the regional framework is every three years is because we never want to use them. They're plans that are for mass fatality incidents or you would use on a kind of Grenfell um, scale. I imagine everyone is aware of the Grenfell um, disaster that happened. So you don't want to ever use them whereas an IT failure or your staff have gone short for whatever reason is something that you do on a regular basis mm-hmm. whereas for emergency planning we never want to invoke those plans so I think that's why there is the difference between the two um, cycles of updating. Yeah you, you mentioned uh, regular use that you know someone's not available a key IT person or a system failure you know uh, to me, a lot, a lot, well, depending on the scope and scale, but a lot of that can end up being daily business as usual incident management practices. Yeah. You know, a, a rather than a, we need to declare disaster and crisis, you know, and go crazy with business continuity plans. It's no incident management. We have four hours to investigate. We have another hour to do this. You know, so you know, come, come your jets. You know, you don't have that four hours or an additional hour in emergency management. Right. Yeah, definitely. Have, your 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 response time uh, is almost zero. <laughs> you yeah. know, you've got to be there right away. Yeah, especially when we're on call. So in my current job, I don't have to be on call, which is which is nice. Not be having not worrying about being woken up in the night. But we provide so many numbers for them to call because if an emergency incident happens, you need to respond as you said so quickly because people's lives are at risk. Mm-hmm. Whereas an IT outage, yes, it's a it's an issue. It could cause a massive issue further down the road, but is anyone's life at stake with that? Probably not, depending on what the situation carries on, especially yeah. where I am now being in a hospital, that, that probably could cause issues. But nine times out of ten, it's just a bit annoying for the staff that can't get the system, whereas a fire burning in a house, there's people at stake. With business continuity, they say, uh, you know, look at your plans every year, annual update every year, and also exercise them every year. If your emergency management uh, plans have a three-year cycle, and let's say, fingers crossed, it's every three years. Let's think happy path, right? No no disasters, uh, emergencies. Do you still exercise those plans annually? So we... 
So, for example, we recently, well, a couple of years ago now, updated the flu pandemic plan for internal multi-agency and our excess deaths plan. I think it was in 2018, which was quite strange, coming a year later, we've got a pandemic, and we um, validated and exercised all those plans. We don't do plan-specific training throughout the year. We do generic incident management, crisis management training. So we'll do a scenario with our crisis support team, our volunteers or the staff who are on call and run through your typical incidents. Because I have found if you start doing these massive elaborate incidents, which quite honestly don't happen, when you get your normal type incident staff kind of in a way, don't know how to react because it's so small from what they've been trained on and exercised on that they they don't really know how to react to it. So, yes, every three years we do the plan-specific exercising, but throughout the year we do what we would call our typical incident exercising. Is that uh, – now I'm going from some of the things that I see here in my city where, yeah. where I live – uh, they will announce, you know, if you see all these uh, fire trucks and police in this area, you know, uh, don't worry about it. There's no incident. They're testing their incident, you know, response plans. Is that the kind of thing you're alluding to? You know, you, you just kind of go through a mock simulation, but not on a massive scale. I'd love to say we would do live incidents. They're very much around a table going through them. I'm... Um, it's something that I think as all emergency management professionals, we would love to do live exercises, but just the time, the amount of time it puts on teams when there's only, say, three of you in a team putting together a whole live exercise and then bringing in all the other resources, it just doesn't fit the agenda at times. So tabletop exercises, it's easier to get those people in the room and it still does what we need it to do. A live exercise would be amazing. Um, and I know that they do do them on regional um, based live exercises every so many years. But yeah. then there's so much more planning going into it and there's so much more people to assist. But organisation specific, it's one of those things we'd love to do it, but we just can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would make sense. I, I, I know what. Uh... The, the reason why I brought that up is last year, uh, our city had one of these incidents. Well, actually, it was before the pandemic. Yeah. They, you know, they couldn't do it, obviously, uh, then. But before the pandemic, they had it. And there were some uh, people calling into the local radio stations and police departments, you know, thinking that uh, it was real situation because they had people yeah. bandaged up, you know, and mock blood and things like that and thought yeah. there's something massive going on. And, you know, some people were starting to panic. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but, but so I, that's why I was kind of wondering like is that the kind of thing you're talking about <laughs> yeah so no so in 2015 or 16 I believe there was one um that was a regional one um and but it was very much in an old building and it simulated a um tube accident um but it was all contained to one building so none of the live play exercise was available to be seen by the public um so things like that do happen but just when you've got such a small team, yeah. it's just we've got other priorities and the tabletop exercises work how we want them to. So, Well, I, I guess working in a hospital, too, by pulling people away from, yeah. you know, uh, let's say, uh, I'm not saying this is the, the person involved, but, you know, pulling a head nurse away from the nurse's station or having yeah. a doctor involved could potentially put 
the life of someone in jeopardy because you're pulling a key resource away from the one of the things you're planning for to make sure they're there for. Yeah. So especially, so how it will work in a hospital is you do all your training around um, their days off or when they have clinical support days. So where they do all their mandatory training, they get half a day every so many months. So you have to fit in with them. So you're not pulling them away from patients because patients are our main priority in a hospital. Um, so that's how it, how it will work. Although administration and those kind of people, it's easier to get tabletop exercises, but definitely for the nurses, we fit in with them. So they still get the training, but we're not putting our patients at risk. And then once you've had your tabletop test, you pull out, well, you already have these plans in front of you and you like identify the gaps and up, update yeah. or, um, you know, I, I'm a big believer of never hitting the delete key in uh, in emergency plans it's just no we've identified another potential action because a different situation can come along and you know that thing that you hit the delete key on suddenly becomes applicable but it's not in your plan so people have forgotten definitely and with business continuity i very much like it to be you've lost your staff you've lost your building it doesn't matter why you've lost your staff or your building because if people start planning for the specifics if something outside that remit happens then people do sometimes panic and don't know what to respond to because it's not set out in their plan so you're just planning that you've lost your building it doesn't matter why just write down what you would do um so that's one of my things i try and get across especially with staff absences, everyone goes we've lost them because of illness you might lose them because of a train disruption or it's the end of the annual leave calendar and everyone's got leave to take. Everyone does business continuity planning then, but they don't necessarily know they're doing it. Yeah. So that's trying to get staff to think about when they're doing these plans. Yeah, I, I'm glad you made mention of the, you know, sometimes people get uh, so focused on the trigger, why they've lost their facility that they can end up going down a rabbit hole. Yeah. And their plan only seems to address that one perfect little situation. And yeah. two weeks later, you've got, you know, you mentioned a, a, a train situation, you know, uh, the tube or subway, you know, uh, for anyone who didn't know what tube was, you know, <laughs> you know, the subway, you know, isn't working. All of a sudden, you've got people maybe uh, stuck in trains, you know, because they can't move or, you know, they're waiting at the station and you've still lost people. Yeah. Uh, exactly. but, but you focus more on, uh, you know, some other situation, you know. Yeah. And especially working in central London, the majority of people either get a tube or a subway um, or an overground train into work. So that is a very possible um, issue that we face, especially with our weather. Mm -hmm. Only last week we had issues with um, patients not coming in because of the trains and staff sometimes not being able to get in. It was minus five, but our transport system starts to shut down. So whereas other people will find that slightly amusing that even if it's minus, as you said, where you are, it's minus 22, yet your public transport still works. So for us, that's a major issue, probably more than losing staff because of a pandemic. Yeah, it's really uh, interesting how uh, you know, we can all have the same situation, but because of where we're located, we're, we have different levels of preparedness, we respond yeah. differently and we act differently. When, yeah. when we're we encounter the same situation yeah definitely 
That's why uh, right now people in Texas, you know, um, in the, the U.S. who's had snowstorms, you know, uh, freezing temperatures, you know, in Texas, you know, which is always warm, you know, yeah. and hot. I've been there. And, uh, you know, suddenly, you know, they're experiencing some of what we experience here up in Canada, you know, the great white north. So it's, <laughs> you know, very, very bizarre. You know, they're, they're not acclimatized to it and they're not prepared for it. Yeah, and also it's to do with people's resilience. If you're not used to a certain situation and it happens, however much you plan for it, you're not, you don't have that mindset. Um, so I think a lot to do with business continuity and emergency planning is knowing the kind of scope of what instance you're going to get, accepting you might get a few outside that, but really understanding it. So when they do happen, however unlikely, you're in that mentality that you can respond to it, even if you've never experienced it before. Well, I, I want to ask, I know we're talking about emergency uh, planning and business continuity planning. Is there a point where one ends, the other one starts? You know, how do you transition from one to the other? Because in business continuity, there is the thought, you know, emergency management is, uh, for the most part, I'm, I'm simplifying it, of course, get the people out of the building, you we have assembly locations, you've got floor wardens, you know, and then somebody uh, is the key focal point for the first responders, you know, and then they take over. Yeah. Uh, and emergency management, because I also sit on the advisory board of directors for the International Emergency Management Society teams. And they have a different perspective of what business continuity is. They don't even bring it into their picture. It's like, no, this is what we focus on. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested in your opinion where one leads into the other or should they even? Yeah, I definitely think they do lead in one into the other. So I think up till, up till a couple of years ago, it was very much seen that in public sector, emergency management, it's all about your residents that's what we're trying to keep safe. Business continuity is about keeping our organisation safe, but we're potentially not as great at doing that as we are about our residents. And then 2017 happened, especially, and we had Grenfell, we had all the terrorist incidents, and a lot of those started as an emergency management issue. Obviously, Grenfell building on fire, but the aftermath and the recovery had such an impact on those organisations that it became a business continuity issue once all the residents had been kind of rehoused and all that work had been done with them. The organisation still had to recover and there were still teams dealing with it for months and months, which then meant they couldn't do their um, internal activities. I think COVID has really highlighted that. Yes, to us, it feels like it should be emergency management because it's the people, it's a flu pandemic plan. That's very much emergency management. But actually, we've had staff off. You've got services that you can't open, like libraries, sports centres. That's become a very much business continuity incident for organisations based on that you can't provide certain activities. There's loss of revenue. And I think this has really highlighted that they shouldn't be seen as two silos. They very much dovetail together, not for every incident, but for quite a lot of them, they will always dovetail together. And that's what you can now try and use in public sector to get people to understand business continuity more. I think COVID has really helped that issue, if I'm honest. I'm making people aware that business continuity isn't just 
some boring thing that they have to fill out a form for. It's actually really important. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, we're going to talk more about dovetailing uh, a little later. Uh, we've come to the end of our first segment. We're talking with Juliana Richardson, a speaker from BCI's Virtual World Conference in November 2020 on the topic of public sector organizations, a business continuity professional's biggest foe. We'll be right back. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Are you ready to hear from investors and get insight on different asset classes? Join host Troy Eckert for the program, Talk with the Texan, Money and Life. Troy works with high net worth investors and is ready to bring you the secrets he's learned in his 35 years of alternative investment experience, along with his guest experts. If you want value, you'll need to listen in live every Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today, we are talking with Juliana Richardson, a speaker at BCI's Virtual World Conference on the topic of public sector organizations, a business continuity professional's biggest foe. Juliana, great first segment, lots of uh, good information there. I'd like to talk about getting buy-in, top-level buy-in. How do you go about getting that? Because that seems to be really ever since I started, you know, 23 years ago, a continuous, ongoing challenge for so many. What are your thoughts on that? I think first we need to define what we mean by top-level buy-in. So do we want top-level buy-in to be a chief executive who knows there is a team there? Or do we want it to be a chief executive who knows the team are there but is engaged in what they do, gets trickles it down from the top so that the people that report up to the chief exec are aware of it and champion the program? And I think that's what we want. I think having top-level buy-in that's just... It's another tick box. It's something we have to have because there's legislation around it. 
yes, it is top level buy-in, but I don't think it's the top level buy-in that we want or we need to get these business continuity programs off the ground. I think that's interesting the way you, you just said that, you know, is it awareness or is it an actual participation? Yeah. Because um, I don't know, and maybe you can explain this. Is there a difference between the emergency management side and business continuity? Because business continuity, oh my goodness, you have to do all these presentations. You have to get their buy-in on every single thing you do. And yet, yeah. I, I don't know too many other industries that constantly do that. But business continuity does. So I'm wondering how emergency, what your thoughts are between emergency management, business continuity, and this buy-in. So sometimes in some organizations, what makes it more complicated is that you have two directors accountable for emergency management and business continuity. Usually the director that you report up to is responsible for emergency planning. And then usually the director for the corporate services, which emergency management and business continuity teams don't usually sit under, in, especially in councils, you usually sit under public protection, but they then have responsibility for business continuity. So you have two, sometimes you can have two directors doing, having accountability for what one team is doing, but they're very separate in where they sit within the council. And again, then they can have very different ideas for how they want the program to go, which is not a bad thing, but sometimes that then can create issues when you're trying to push the agenda in one meeting. So we have emergency planning business continuity meetings. We don't split them out. So then having the two directors can can create some issues around pushing both agendas forwards. So how do you go about bringing those together? Because in your uh, topic title, it's a business continuity professional's biggest foe, question mark. So how yeah. do you go about bringing those together so that um, you're not foes? So I think one of our major issues is that sometimes we create more issues for ourselves we can see directors as this massive hurdle or this massive wall that we have to get through in order to get our agenda across or progress the program. And actually we don't use them to how we should be. We see them as a challenge. And then that creates more issues because the way you're heads all the time, you as the professional see them as a brick wall. They want to help most of the time and want to engage, but you're not letting them. So I think we need to actually see them as somebody who can help us progress the programme across the council or across the NHS. And just because they are in different parts of the organisation doesn't mean that they can't come together with the team and we can create a programme that has everything, especially since COVID has blurred the line so much between the two. I think it's even more important for us not to see those directors as a challenge and as a hurdle for us to get through. I think one of the things is we, as emergency management officers, we have, or we did in my previous job, we had a director on call all the time. So we liaise with them. We do training around emergency management. We have quite good relationships with them because at two o'clock in the morning, you need to. Um, We all know how it feels to be woken up probably at two o'clock in the morning. So those relationships have to be there. But I think when we start looking at business continuity, we forget that we have those relationships and we forget that actually 
the directors do want to help us and do see us as subject matter experts but because everyone's a bit hesitant about business continuity we kind of forget about all of that and then create more issues for ourselves so what kind of things uh, let's say it's me i'm the, the business continuity person your emergency management in the public sector how what kind of things should i do and, and maybe not do you know to help us work together so that we're on the same page, even though we have some different focuses, we know how we link together and how we need to work together. So I think one of the things is finding common ground. So in emergency management and business continuity, there is common ground and our plan should always reflect that and should work out. So there'll be certain services across the organisation that we use heavily in emergency management, but actually in a business continuity incident would be heavily involved as well. And those need to dovetail together. I think in some ways, emergency management and business continuity are very siloed. And I think that's one of the major issues if they dovetail together, which I think is coming in the public sector, um, especially as teams now have responsibility for emergency management and business continuity. They are starting to dovetail together. And I think the more, in a way, the more incidents we have where they do dovetail together, the more it makes sense to the organisation, to the directors who have accountability, they know where they stand um, with the programmes, they know where their role is and how they can actually help champion the programme because it's very well having a team of three or four people cheerleading the way for business continuity but we need that director to champion it. And sometimes emergency management does overpower business continuity. Again, as we've said in public sector, it's about the residents. We sometimes forget about looking after ourselves. So I think that's really the key. Well, it's interesting. You just said sometimes emergency management overpowers business continuity. Does that, is that more related to the incident itself? Because the, business continuity people, let's say myself, is, well, I got to get the system up and running. I got to get people available to do X, Y, and Z. But emergency management can say, it's not safe to do that. You are not going to that area where there's a chemical spill or whatever the case may be. You you are not sending people there to do that. So how how do you know who takes the lead um, in any situation? How is that uh, identified? So I think, thankfully, in all the organisations I've worked in, there's been one team doing both situations. So we would respond to your 2am incidents. We obviously get incidents at other times, um, but and we would also respond to those business continuity incidents. However, the, there is an issue about when do we get involved in business continuity incidents. We don't want to be involved in your service level business continuity instance. The service needs to deal with that. They're best place to deal with that. We wouldn't at 2am when we get a call from the fire brigade go, we'll pass it on to another team. We're the most qualified to deal with that. So I think it's working out when the team gets involved in a business continuity instance and when it's just left to that individual service to respond to it. And they have a plan or they should have a plan for it. I think that's something that still hasn't been fully bottomed out. 
knowing where we come in and assist and what those levels of escalation are. Mm. I think that's one of the challenges that we have to figure out where, where the escalation is and how that happens. Yeah, I find that a lot uh, with different situations. You read about it, uh, you know, hear about it is, you know, this process dovetails this one, this one dovetails that, but okay, but where does that start? Yes. How, how does it start? It's easy to say I can dovetail, you know, off of emergency management or emergency management can dovetail off of me, but where's that starting point to know, right? I think that's very well established in emergency management in the public sector because we've got the legislation around it. We know what we do, whereas we don't have any, we've got the good practice guidelines, but we don't have the, the equivalent of the Civil Contingencies Act, which basically tells us how we should respond. So I think that's also the issue. There's, there's, no, there's nothing we can put in front of a director to say, if you don't do it, there'll be repercussions other than just that the business will stop performing how it should do. And sometimes that's not enough, especially with the different politics that you get in public sector. Saying that just isn't going to cut it some of the time. It's interesting you mentioned uh, good practice guidelines and uh, some of the regulations. And I can't help but think about the different languages that are being used. And you talked about that in your presentation is, um, and one of the points you have is not using business continuity speak. Yes. Uh, <laughs> can you explain that a little more? So I think, so I've been, I've done this myself, gone into a training session to deliver business continuity training to people that quite frankly think they have better things to do and probably do, but they need to do the training and just gone in there and done everything that I've learned at university, spoke how we all spoke at uni with all the different languages, the acronyms, and they just look at you like you've got two heads. <laughs> I think we wouldn't go to a different country and expect them to speak our language. If you go to another country, you either learn the language or you just get by. So why do we ex go into training sessions with people that don't know a lot about business continuity and expect them to understand everything I'm saying? It took me years to understand the different acronyms. I think it's an issue in emergency management, but I think that's been overcome by some of the Jessup principles, which are the joint emergency services principles. So police and fire had the same three-letter acronym, but they spelled completely different things. So I think we really need to learn from that and learn that not everyone knows what we're talking about and make it relevant to them. Talk to them in a way that they understand. And I've been, I've done that myself, gone in and just talked how I think they should understand and they haven't and it gets you nowhere. Yeah, I, I, I've been a victim of that as well. <laughs> you know, I think uh, anybody worth their salt, you know, weight and salt, it would say that, you know, that we've all done that. You yeah. Know, uh, I, I read about it and it, sometimes it's called the curse of knowledge. You know what you're saying, you know what you want to say, but you have to make a, an additional step of converting what you're saying so that nobody <laughs> understands it. You know, yeah. So that your your monologue be, can become dialogue with someone. Yeah. Otherwise, it's huh? 
<laughs> so a prime example, I was I'm doing my, um, so I did a placement year in between my second and third um, year degree. So I was still an undergraduate. I went into an NHS acute trust and I was, and I was going around checking all the business continuity boxes and people just didn't care. And I realised it was because it was called business continuity and not patient safety. So the boxes were around the patients. We were just calling them what we thought they would just be called. But the nurses and doctors are all about patient safety and quite rightly. So just changing it from let's check the business continuity box to let's check the patient safety box. And people just fully engaged even more with me. And it was just some simple language that went from no engagement to them really engaging and understanding why it was needed. So that goes back to your point earlier on, speaking their language so that they understand what it is you're trying to convey. But at the same time, by you changing your language, you understand what's important to them. Yeah, and that's something. So in the public sector, we can't write the plans for them. We don't understand the services and departments to a level, and we don't have time to go and understand them to that level. So the thing that you need is to understand what is the most critical thing to that service and go in at that angle. And then it fully resonates and relates to them. And that's how you then get the engagement and you get over those challenges that at the beginning seem impossible. Now we've got 10 minutes left, but uh, sorry, nine minutes left, but I know uh, you want to touch on COVID. Yes. So, because uh, you had some uh, success stories and you, you have some uh, points that you wanted to uh, bring up with COVID. So, yeah. So, when I was doing my presentation, I thought it'd be really naive of me not to mention COVID. It's had such an impact on all our lives. Um, and I feel it's been very negative in the press, the media, and how people perceive it. And quite rightly, it's a horrible disease, which is completely gone worldwide but I think there are positives that we can take from COVID and how we're going to implement how we work in the future so obviously I've just started at Moorfields Eye Hospital but last year they were looking at how they can get patients in seen and out quickly social distancing doesn't allow for that many patients in a hospital and so We have glaucoma and medical retina clinics. And previously, these would take for one patient between three and four hours to be seen. They do the test, the consultants would look at them, they'd then go back to the patient. So they devised a diagnostic hub, which is a completely separate building. And the patients can have all their tests done within 45 minutes. The results are then emailed to the consultants and the consultants look through them at a later date and then phone the patients that are the most that need the most attention or need a medical attention quite quickly. So they can they, this has increased our attendance by 2,700 people per month. And as the one of the leading eye specialist hospitals, that's quite a lot more patients that we can actually see. And that has all been as a result of COVID and trying to work out how is the most efficient and safest way to see our patients when we have staff redeployed elsewhere. So that's been a very big success story, which they're looking at using in future planning and how we can actually keep this going as it has been such a success. Nice. 
Now, uh, sorry, I just wanted to write that down so I didn't forget it. <clears throat> that uh, you, don't, you, don't hear too many, you don't hear too many success stories in COVID right now. Yeah, exactly. So, and it's also allowed us to get through some of the backlog that we've had as a result of having to put patients on hold while we deal with the pandemic. Being in the NHS, as much as we're a specialist hospital, we've sent patient, we've sent sorry staff to other hospitals to help on intensive care wards. So we've had to scale down, even though we've not been impacted because we're not on a queue. And then the second example was we did a cataract drive. So mostly cataract surgery is quite low on our scale it doesn't have massive consequences if you don't have it done within a certain time but for certain people who do a lot of driving for work the implications can be quite substantial and so we opened all our theatres for one week and um saw over um 720 eyes during that week and did just a whole week of cataract surgery which got through some of the backlog our surgeons were working different shifts and just enabled us to see those patients that we hadn't been able to see because we had redeployed staff and we were giving covid tests out on their day that they came in for pre-surgery so they don't have to wait when they come in for the actual surgery i mean the patients felt a lot safer and more willing to come into a hospital. So, and again, this is something that we're going to look at seeing if we can future plan for it and keep doing this as it's a good way of getting through all our patients in one week and managing that backlog from COVID. But also it's been very successful and the patient feedback has been really good that they felt supported throughout and that the system actually really worked. So there's just two examples of how we've had to adapt to COVID, but this can now become our normal business as usual at, at some point. Is there the potential, I'm not going to put you on the spot, <laughs> your potential to be able to carry that kind of process into uh, other areas? Uh, you know, I'll say a silly one, you know, ingrown toenails. Anyone with an ingrown toenail can all come in during this one week. You know, uh, is, is there the potential of using that same kind of strategy? in other areas so, so for us because we're so specialist in being an eye hospital there's only certain procedures that probably can wait mm. and be deferred so most of the people that we see it's for life it's kind of sight saving um, or in a way life saving as we have an oncology department so probably across across what we do it's there's not many where we can replicate it other than the cataracts um, and the diagnostic hub, again, we only use for glaucoma and medical retina, but we can then replicate that across our sites in London. So we probably can't replicate it across services, but we can definitely look at how we can replicate some of it across our satellite sites but that, and create that, more sites. But that approach, I, I, I think the approach you're using could be um, uh, utilized by other institutions yeah not like i said i'm not going to put you on the spot saying yes they should or anything like that but the you've you've created a model that maybe others could look at and say hey maybe we could do that for like i said you know toenails or something yeah yeah so across other trusts it could be something that is replicated oh that's good it's good good to hear it's nice to hear some success stories with covid uh you know considering it's so negative 
Yeah, and certainly um, things that we're looking at putting into our long-term planning. So it's not we've realised there's an issue during COVID, we've dealt with it, but we're not going to look at it again. We're actively looking at how we can incorporate it once we're all back to a new normal and see if it's something that we can carry on. Um, We've only got uh, two minutes left. Uh, Would you like to take a minute, minute and a half with any final thoughts on emergency management and business continuity and, uh, you know, the foe? Yeah, so I think for me, business continuity is very much about getting over those challenges, but also about accepting there will be challenges. Um, I think if you come in to the sector and think, I'm going to implement a business continuity program within six months, it's going to be fine. Everyone's going to love it and engage with it. I think you're setting yourself up for issues. Whereas if you step back, look at what your challenges might be and they will differ from organization to organization and actually put a roadmap in place it sets you up for getting that program in but understanding what hurdles you'll have i think the biggest one is dovetailing make sure your business continuity plans dovetail because it's fine having 100 plans working in silo but it's going to fall down in an incident people need to talk to each other and understand everyone's requirements so, yeah, understand your challenges and get people talking would be my kind of thoughts on how to implement a good business continuity program. I, I like your comment about the, uh, you know, six months to put a program together or something together. I've been in the, that situation and then, you know, my contract ends and they leave. And oh. even though I leave, leave a big list, okay, th- if this is what you've got to take and do moving forward. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Um, you know, and you check back later on and the person that was supposed to take it over is gone. The director is gone. You're like, you know, I did all that work for you to protect you, to help you. And, you know, you're not there anymore. (laughs) It makes you wonder, you know, was it worth it? Yeah. The end, you know, so that six month thing, you know, uh, I've been there. And uh, unfortunately, you know, I wish I could see it through longer and further for everyone's successful. But, oh, well. Juliana, thank you very much for sharing your expertise and time today. I really appreciate it. You know, and I know you uh, mentioned you're having a rainy day there in uh, London. (laughs) And uh, minus 20 degrees here where I am. So opposite ends here. (laughs) No, thank you so much for um, having me on. Well, my pleasure. And thank you uh, again for uh, sharing everything with us and your comments and uh, input. I greatly appreciate it. And I hope uh, a lot of people uh, can take some uh, things away uh, from this, our chat here and to everybody who is watching and listening, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for preparing for the unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.